thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. So I received this email from somebody who wants to know, can I ask the naked scientist absolutely anything and everything? Yeah, I think you can pretty much ask him anything and everything. He will be able to help you. Chris, good morning. Good morning. I can't guarantee I'll answer it straight away, but I'll have a go. <laughs> Lovely. All right, let, let's start on. Let's start off with this then. Uh, this is very interesting. A molecule that block, blocks uh, dwarfism. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So we're all acquainted, hopefully, because everyone will be sympathetic to people who have a problem called achondroplasia, or it's better known as dwarfism. And this condition, which is pretty rare, is an inherited condition parents pass on to their children a gene which is called the FGFR3 gene and this gene causes the bones when they develop as an individual grows to not develop as lo- the length that they should and so individuals end up with short stature and some other skeletal abnormalities and up until now there's not been any really convincing way to remedy this problem and this puts parents who have got the condition into a difficult position because they could have children, but if they do have children, they will have a child with a high well, they will have a high probability of having a child that may have the condition. Mm-hmm. Some may think that's okay. Some parents may not like that. They'd like to perhaps have a child that wouldn't have the problem. So there is a piece of research which has come out this week. It's in the journal Science Translational Medicine, which could shed an enormous amount of light on how to remedy this problem. It's by Elvira Goose, who's a researcher at Inserm which is the French National Institute for Health and Medical Research in Nice, France. And what they have published is the creation of a molecule where they know what the um, signal is, the the signal that makes the bones stop growing. This is a, a signal called FGF, fibroblast growth factor. And so what they've done is to make an artificial version of this receptor, FGFR3, which is mutated in people who have this condition. And we know that when they have that mutation, what it does is it makes the receptor far more active than it should be. So their theory was if they make an artificial version of the receptor that just goes around in the bloodstream, it will soak up the signaling molecule, the FGF, rather like a sponge, and stop it working on the receptor as much as it should. And this means that it will compensate for the overactivity in the receptor. So they've got these mice which have the rodent equivalent of dwarfism. So you get a a very small mouse, rather Mm -hmm. like you get a smaller human. When they give them during the time that the mouse is growing, so from the time of birth until it's three weeks old, injections of this decoy receptor twice a week for three weeks, they get mice that are structurally and physically indistinguishable from healthy normal mice. And this suggests that by blocking or or knocking down this signal in this way, you can rescue back 
the problem. And when those mice go on to have, have their own offspring, they're perfectly mm -hmm. capable of having healthy offspring themselves. And they say, obviously, it's a long way to go from a mouse to a human, but this does appear to work. It does appear to be safe because they examined all of the organs and the bones of these mice and couldn't find any abnormalities. What we will have to work out, though, is whether this is safe over the sort of duration that a human would need it. Humans grow for two decades nigh on, don't they? So we'd have to make sure that it was safe when treated in that way for that long and what sorts of doses we would need to do this in a human. But it's certainly really encouraging. All right, then this next story, what does earwax from a blue whale have to do with its lifetime? Yeah, there's a really stunning paper. It's in the journal PNAS this week. It's by researchers at Baylor University, Stephen Trumbull and his colleagues there in the States. And they were uh, the lucky recipients of a dead blue whale a few years ago. There was a blue whale which unfortunately had been hit by a boat off the coast mm. of Santa Barbara in California. And this uh, whale carcass was obtained by these scientists and they could examine it for scientific purposes. And something that whales make is a thing called an ear plug. And in the same way that we make ear wax in our ear canal, whales also get an accumulation of earwax in their ear canals. But unlike us, where the ear canal is a matter of a centimetre or so long, in a whale it is feet in length. So you get a blob of earwax, a foot long. And they have obtained from this whale carcass the ear plugs from this animal, uh, which are in this case 25 centimetres long. And as the animal grows and ages, it deposits wax around the outside of the existing ear plug. So you end up with a thing a bit like tree rings, which every every time that the whale makes a new layer of wax, that's more time passing. So if you count the rings, you can work out how old. And also what this group have done is you can extract from each of the rings the chemicals that are in the wax, which get into the wax from the whale's bloodstream. And this enables you to build up a profile of the whale's lifetime levels of different hormones. They've done this for stress hormones. They've done it for the hormone testosterone, so they can register the male the, the whale because it was a male's uh, sexual maturity. Also exposure to pollutants in the environment. They were looking at what are called persistent organic pollutants and mercury, which is obviously an industrial toxin and uh, can be used as an index of uh, the concentration of toxins in the in the food for, for the whale as it goes around its daily business. And this enables them now to really look at the physiology of this whale over time and how whales develop and mature because these species are incredibly rare and very hard to do a lifetime study like this. And then they point out that there are many of these earplug specimens in museums which go back maybe more than 100 years. So actually if we examined many of those in the same way as they've done this, mm -hmm. then it would be possible to build a profile of how these, these very uh, rare and endangered animals develop, age, grow and if we understand more about them we'll understand better how to conserve them time for your calls now on 021-446-0567-011-8830702 and we have a call from six-year-old christian in johannesburg good morning good morning yes you have a question for the naked scientist yes go ahead darling what why do people Scratch their heads when I don't know something. Ooh, you know, Christian, you've Whoa. just asked this question and I'm <laughs> scratching my head now because I don't know what the answer is. That's a beautiful, brilliant question. <laughs> Hi, Christian. I'm also scratching my head because I'm actually a little bit unsure of the answer to this as to whether there's a real reason or whether actually we see people doing this in cartoons and it's used as a sort of way of showing that someone doesn't really know the answer. But 
do people really scratch their head when they don't know the answer? I don't know if they really do. Do you? Do you, Christian? Yes. <laughs> he does. Yeah. Well, I can only think it's a learned behaviour. I think that we see other people doing this, and so when we ourselves don't know the answer, we copy them. and We all kind of go scratch, 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 or do something which shows that we're thinking. And I reckon that's the reason. I don't think that it, there's any particular reason why we do it other than someone started doing it or a cartoon started doing it and everyone copied Mm, but that's a, that's a great question, Christian. Maybe somebody else uh, can add more to that. Thank you very much for phoning and have a lovely, lovely day. Maybe we're trying to demonstrate that we're thinking. I had a teacher, a geography teacher, who hated that uh, because she felt we weren't applying our minds, but we're acting as if we were by scratching our heads. So she didn't, <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like it. Can't believe that. you weren't applying your mind, really. It used to happen. It still does sometimes. All right, let's go to Mel in Clermont. Hi. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris, I've got a question about dinosaurs. What was it about the world at the time of the dinosaurs that allowed them to grow so big? And was there a limiting factor? Could they have grown even bigger? Was it something like a strength-to-weight ratio limiting factor? Uh, I'll listen on the radio. Yeah, hi, Mel. Well, we first of all ask what did for the dinosaurs in the first place. We know that they dominated the Earth for hundreds of millions of years. They first appeared a few hundred million years ago. In fact, crocodiles and alligators, which we still see around today, and caimans, they are very close ancestors of animals that have hardly changed over maybe 300 million years. So these animals are very successful, and the fact that crocodilian sort of radiations are still around today tells you how successful they are. Their close relatives, the reptilian dinosaurs, they unfortunately disappeared 60 million years ago, and we think the final nail in the coffin for them was this giant impactor coming from space, a, a lump of asteroid from the asteroid belt near Mars, which ended up on an Earth-bound course, mash, smashed into Earth, and changed the climate quite dramatically. We think that that was part of it. Um, why was the Earth so propitious and, and uh, high-quality high, um, environment for these animals? Well, in order to get that big, they needed to eat a huge amount of food. They also were cold-blooded, so they needed to have a reasonable amount of energy on tap, so in other words, warm temperatures. And the Earth at that time did offer a prodigious amount of food in the, in the form of plants. And if you've got lots of plants, you can have very big herbivores. You have to have big animals if you're herbivores because then they can uh, process all this plant matter. That's why elephants are really big, cows are really big. And if you've got big herbivores, you can have big carnivores because they can eat them. And if you've got very big herbivores, then you need a big carnivore because otherwise it's not going to be able to catch and eat a big herbivore. So I think one thing begot another and they evolved to become extremely large because the planet being warm and fertile, lots of things for them to eat, allow them to do that when the climate changed and when the thing the balance was upset it then favored the creation of or the evolution of a new uh, radiation of animals that could then dominate and that was when the mammals came along there were mammals that overlapped with the dinosaurs uh, but they were very small and insignificant and, and didn't really get going very well until as the dinosaurs disappeared and that pressure of the presence of the dinosaurs was lifted then the mammals really took off because they were warm-blooded they were agile they had big brains and they could therefore plan for their future a bit they could change their environment to suit them a bit and then they came to dominate as we see today all right, uh, Eric, Peter, Jane, Anton, another Eric in Centurion. I see your calls coming to you right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 
And this is your opportunity to ask your questions and satisfy your curiosity about the world in which we live or how the human body functions even. We're taking your calls for The Naked Scientist on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Peter in Midrand, hi. Hi there, really. Uh, it's Peter here. Um, the, my question for the scientist is why does everything rotate in the universe or don't they know? Hi, Peter. Well, actually, we do have a pretty clear idea as to why things rotate. And the reason for this is a phenomenon called conservation of angular momentum. Now, when the universe was born from the Big Bang 13.8-ish billion years ago, then there would have been random fluctuations and movements in the particles. And those particles would have ended up turning in one direction or another just by chance. Some of these things would have got together and formed bigger masses of particles, and if you've got things spinning and you add the spin of one thing to the spin of another thing, then the spin of the total is the difference between the two. So if you put lots of things that are moving together, they can't lose this momentum, they can't get rid of it apart from sharing it with all the other particles they're with. So if things are turning, they're going to end up turning in the dominant direction of whatever got together to make a planet or whatever. Now, if you extrapolate that to the whole universe, all of the stuff in the universe has effectively come from the Big Bang, and and it's spread out, and stars have formed and then blown themselves to pieces, and this has distributed the material yet further. And because everything is turning um, from the fluctuations in the Big Bang, you end up with everything still turning today, because there's nowhere for that momentum to go. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't lose the momentum. You have to conserve the angular momentum. So everything turns, and it turns in one dominant direction based on all the things that made it. Lovely question. Thank you very much, Peter. Eric and Centurion, hi. Uh, good morning. Yes. I would like to know, Chris, um, where, where, this is a, maybe a generalization, but when you look into the sun in the morning shortly after sunrise, you, you can generally, you can't look into a sun for a long time. It, it's too bright. But in the late afternoon, it generally is quite easy to look almost directly into the sun. And I would like to know, is there a specific reason for it? Yeah, so first of all, be really careful looking at the sun mm-hmm. because if you think about it, have you ever done the experiment where if you take a magnifying glass and put it into the sunlight, you can burn pieces of paper because the sun's rays can be focused by the magnifying glass onto the surface of the, of the piece of paper and the concentration of the rays at that point will start a little fire. Have you tried that? Okay, let's let, let me just I'd put him uh, on hold. Uh, Eric, yeah. Don't really look into the sun. It's more at a at a glance. Oh, okay. Well, well, the reason I'm citing the magnifying glass example is that in your eye you have a lens which does exactly the same job as that magnifying glass and it focuses the sun's rays or light coming into your eye to a point on your retina. And so if you look directly at the sun, you're focusing that very hot sunlight straight onto the back of your retina and you can start effectively burning the back of your retina in just the same way that you can burn a piece of paper with your magnifying glass. So be very careful. There's not really any reason why you should find it easier to look at the sun uh, in the evening than in the morning because... In both instances, the sun is on the horizon, and when the sun is on the horizon, the sunlight that is reaching you is coming across a very broad part of the Earth's surface. It's coming through the Earth's atmosphere on a much longer course than when the sun is directly overhead. And this means that the uh, rays of light have been more scattered by the atmosphere and interactions with particles in the atmosphere, which means that the intensity of light actually reaching you at this point 
is lower. And the evidence that that light is being scattered is that the sun looks a different colour on the horizon. The reason the sun, when it comes up in the morning and when it goes down at night, is an orangey-red colour is because the blue light interacts strongly with the particles in the atmosphere of nitrogen and oxygen and it gets scattered. And this means that you're removing some of the energetic particles of light. The photons are being scattered out, so what eventually reaches you is less energetic, less powerful, and therefore less bright as well. So that's probably why you find it easier to look at, but I wouldn't have thought there's any mm. physical reason why it should make a difference whether it's morning or evening. It might be that by evening there's more dust in the atmosphere because people have been out and about and there's more pollution, right. and pollution will definitely do the scattering, but I, um, I'd be surprised if it makes a huge difference, to be honest, but it that might be the, the best reason I can think of. Here's an SMS here uh, from D. Can you ask the naked scientist why autistic people are keen on computer programming? Are they, Chris? Well, there's a very good book which has been written by Simon Baron Cohen, who's um, a researcher with an interest in what we call autism spectrum disorders and Asperger's. He's at Cambridge University. And he looks at this kind of thing. And, and what is interesting about people who have autism and autism-like disorders, including Asperger's, is that they tend to be very good at visuospatial and mathematical tasks. There's various te tests you can do where you show people a what look like a series of lines on a piece of paper and there'll be various shapes that could be extrapolated. If you imagine a whole lot of intersecting lines, they'll make triangles and squares and that kind of thing. If you ask people to count them up, if you do that with someone who's got autism, they're very, very good at it, and they can do those sorts of things extremely quickly. They're often very good at mathematical things. They like those sort of logic tasks. And computing is a logical language. And so it directly resonates with how these people tend to think and the things that uh, they find very interesting and very easy to do mm -hmm. because computers are extremely logical. And so you tend to find that people who have those sorts of things tend to be better at doing those tasks because their brain probably is wired up better to do it than um, a person who would not be considered autistic. Anton in Alberton, hi. Hi, how's it, Reedy? How's it, Chris? Um, I want to know why an effervescent tablet takes longer to dissolve in cold water as opposed to room temperature water. Short and sweet. Ah, okay, very good question. So this is the Alka-Seltzer after the night before, was it? <laughs> I'll tell you that as a yes. <laughs> uh, the reason these tablets go fizzy in the first place, let's explain that. So they're a dry tablet and they fizz when you put them into water. And the reason this happens is that they contain in the same tablet a powder which, when it dissolves in water, makes a weak acid. Usually they use citric acid because it's completely safe and it's the same stuff you get in your average orange or lemon. And you mix that. Also, they use tartaric acid as well. Also, you mix that with a weak alkaline material. Usually they use sodium bicarbonate, the same stuff you put in self-raising flour or, or baking soda. This, too, is only alkaline when it is in a liquid form. And so when the tablet is... Uh, as a solid, there's no water there, so the particles of the acid and the alkali cannot get together to react. When the tablet goes into water, the particles begin to dissolve, and this means you release the acid and you release the alkali, and the two can get together, and an acid plus an alkali, in this case it's bicarbonate, HCO3, the acid attacks the bicarbonate, and it releases CO2, that's the bubbles, the gas, and it makes a molecule of water. And that's why it happens in water. Thanks, Anton. Charles, our last caller. Good morning. 
Yes, hello. Um, I was wondering, my father suffered from Parkinson's for 20 years, and in the last five years of his life, uh, he could barely walk during the day when awake. But he, uh, he also suffered from a sleep disorder, which many Parkinson's people have. That meant that he uh, would act out his dreams and could run up and down stairs and move heavy objects whilst fast asleep. And I wondered why this is, and maybe there's a cure in there. And you couldn't do the same when he was wide awake. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, hello, Charles. Um, first of all, my sympathy is to hear about this because um, it's a very frustrating disease. The thing about Parkinson's is it occurs because a part of the brain, which is called the dopaminergic circuit, is damaged. And you lose nerve cells that make the nerve transmitter chemical dopamine. These dopamine signals go into a part of the brain called the striatum, and specifically a part of the striatum where they help to initiate movement, and that's volitional movement. And that volitional movement signal is then transmitted onto the motor parts of the brain and they then execute the movement by telling the muscles what to do in your spinal via your spinal cord so in other words you plan what you want to do dopamine helps you do that planning and then you instruct the motor parts of the brain to do that those motor parts of the brain though can also be controlled by involuntary regions of the nervous system and this specifically is in things like if, you, if you're playing tennis at Wimbledon, if you watch how fast those individuals are reacting mm -hmm. to a ball coming over the net, they are making movements far faster than can be accounted for by them consciously seeing, perceiving and reacting to the ball. Oh. They are working on a sort of automatic system. And what we think happens here is that the visual parts of the brain, the visual system, has various circuits where when you see something, it puts the information through this visual circuit and computes the correct thing for you to do to react to it and then tells the motor system what to do, bypassing the part of the brain that's affected by Parkinson's disease. And when you go to sleep, when you're having these dreams, you're seeing things happening, and so your visual system is then telling these motor circuits what to do because it's going through this alternative circuit and the part of the brain that normally gates or stops you acting out your dreams can also be damaged in Parkinson's disease so that control is lifted and so you end up with people actually beginning to act out some of their dreams sometimes people with Parkinson's are very rigid or stiff during the day they'll all say oh I roll over in bed and you know I get comfortable in bed no problem when I'm asleep well, it's bizarre isn't it it is absolutely bizarre Chris we've got an answer for why we scratch our heads Somzila says oh, really, go on then. <laughs> really we scratch our heads because we've Got dendrite. Oh, that too. That's true. <laughs> but not in my case. <laughs> I like the one which we had a tweet here to at Naked Scientists. Um, why do birds poop on red cars? I said, well, I wouldn't date them again if they did that. <laughs> You're naughty. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going off for a couple of weeks. I'll see you again um, in a couple of weeks once baby's born. Thank you very much Way for your contribution to the show. Yes, well, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing um, what, what's going to happen. I hope you're going to tell me, tell me all the news. Of course I will. I'll keep you posted. Thanks, Chris. Good luck, Reedy. Bye-bye. We're Thank thinking you. of you. Bye-bye. Thanks indeed. And of course, we will podcast this conversation with The Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.